Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It's a true honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So, I mean, first things off the bat, I have to ask, uh, what is the go-to salsa dancing spot in Chicago? As one who has been described as a master salsa dancer, what are the spots we need to be looking out for? So, I was a professional salsa dancer, meaning I was in three professional dance companies here in Chicago. Uh, across salsa, bachata, um, cumbia, merengue. So I used to be on the scene, but this was like 10 years ago. So I have not done that in full transparency. Um, there, I used to know every hotspot from like the Thursday one to the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But I do hear that Hubbard Inn is the new hotspot. Uh, I hear that they fly in DJs from all over the US, maybe all over the world to come in and, and play some sets. So if you are interested, you should try it out. You know, I at once upon a time, I, I could do the box trot. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how, how comparable those are and how that might lend itself to salsa dancing, but uh, I have to give it a go. I think, I think it's something that I wanna do on my 2021 list. You do, and you know what? Salsa dancing, I mean, look, I, was, I, I get intense about everything I do, even hobbies, and so, I started dancing because I enjoyed it. And then obviously then that got into like doing it every single day to taking every single class to then being part of, you know, <laughs> dance companies. But it's such a great just community here in Chicago. It's something that you don't have to, you know, be a specific, have a degree in or be part of a certain community. It's very welcoming. And it's you're all joined by a love of dance. And whether you stuck at it the first time or you're a professional, I think, you know, from my experience in the Latino community here in Chicago is very welcoming. So you should absolutely try it. All right. Well, I'm sold. As long as it's okay to suck on the first try, that's all I needed to hear. I am in yeah. Hubbard in here I come. So we touched a little bit on the salsa dancing, but I think we'd all love to hear about your you know, background, your path to VC and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So going all the way back, uh, I was born in Mexico, moved to the US at a, a young age. I was about six years old. So I actually moved to Rogers Park. That's where my grandma was. And that's where we ended up moving she was the reason why we ended up moving here to Chicago. And uh, from there, we moved out to the suburbs, Itasca. So that's pretty much where I grew up. And I picked up math quicker than I picked up English. And so that's what led me to study engineering at the University of Michigan. So I, I uh, did that. When I graduated, I joined Goldman Sachs also in the Chicago office. And I started right before the financial crisis the last financial crisis, and I was there for nearly a decade um, doing sales. So most, so I, I did engineering and then sales. It's still solving a problem, but uh, different types of problems, different types of clients. And then I uh, went to Northwestern to get my MBA, so stayed you know, in the area. And then uh, when I graduated, I joined Math Venture Partners, which is a local Chicago VC firm here, and uh, started right as they started Fund 1 and was there through Fund 2. And then from there, I, uh, I, I launched Chingona Ventures in April of 2019. And so now we're, what, 28 plus months in. Uh, we're coming towards on a fund one, launching fund two soon. 
So, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. It's such an <laughs> awesome background for so many reasons. I think one part that I want to key in on a little bit is the Goldman Sachs time, especially around the financial crisis. You know, you joined at such a tumultuous time for the industry. You saw that crisis upfront firsthand. How did that prepare you for for COVID? How did that prepare you? How and how have those crises crises in the historical context? What do you think some of the biggest differences now that we can sort of look back with a year and a half of data on COVID? I would love to just start there on those two comparisons. Yeah. Well, so. I'm part of the kind of the older millennial generation. I'm in the between the Gen Y and the is that, is that the generation before Gen Y and millennial, but I'm right there, so, yeah. right where where I grew up without the internet, also without mobile phones. But part of my teenage years was started the mobile phones and all that. So I have kind of the both worlds. But I say that because there was an article that talked about how our generation has gone through, you know. There was a, a couple of financial crises, you know, one the last one in the 90s, I believe, and then 9-11, right, and then the financial crisis, and then now COVID. So we've gone through all of that. And so pretty much my whole life has been new crises, you know, that have happened and, and meant like many others, specifically as it relates to Goldman Sachs. So when I started it, literally, we started to see, I used to work in the, in the futures group. And that meant that we're predicting prices for the future. And I started to see volumes go up and volumes, basically that that shut down our systems because there was so much trading. And so I knew there was something happening, but we didn't know exactly what was happening, or at least I didn't. Certain people probably at the firm did. And so from that, it was basically all hands on deck. It was a crazy environment. You know, eventually people were getting laid off. It, I call it was like the, I call it the fat, the meat, the bone, like people that were going to leave anyway. Then it was like core people. Then it was my analyst class that was super cheap and we worked the mm -hmm. longest and mm -hmm. we were getting fired. Right. So it was just a crazy environment to be in. But then in terms of from a sales perspective, a lot of my clients were always worried about, okay, what's next? How do we protect our portfolio? You know, eventually we got out of the crisis and, and people were always looking for the next thing. And what I learned from that was that as, as long as you had your core portfolio, right, you had your core portfolio built in and you could always sprinkle kind of opportunities, but as long as the strategy could last different types of environments, you know, we could, you could make money in, in a lot of different environments and, you know, make money on the upside and protect the downside. And so the way I think about my portfolio and even the companies that I invest in is, you know, there's a lot of hot things that come to market. There's NFTs, there's sneakers. Now we get a lot of sneaker businesses and all sorts of things. <laughs> and we'll sprinkle those, you know, in the portfolio. But the core part of our business is we're looking at businesses that uh, sometimes are boring, that have a growing need in all different types of markets. Sometimes we'll, we're going to get surprised, you know, for instance, in that tech space, it was not as, as sexy pre-COVID. And who would have thought that, you know, obviously with COVID, a lot of the ad tech businesses became a lot more valuable and there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of demand for, for different ways of teaching. And so, so there are going to be businesses where you're going to have unexpected surprises given market conditions. But as long as you build your core portfolio to to last these conditions, um, and and also what I mean by that for companies is that you know a good part about being in the Midwest is that we look for long, a good long sustainable businesses that are trying to produce money right away, that are getting to profitability, 
that don't raise, you know, crazy amounts necessarily and, and go spend and spend and fire and you want to grow very, very quickly, but you also want to build sustaining businesses that can last during COVID. And so what we saw during COVID is not that we predicted was environment, an environment where your business model was challenged, where all of a sudden, you know, revenue was down or, or delayed. And so you kind of, you had to figure out how you were going to get through that and how you were going to make certain your, your cash last, you know, um, X number of months to get you past that. So, so all that said is that you know we look to build a portfolio that's long lasting, and we look for companies that can sustain different types of environments. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's kind of almost alluding to maybe a truism, maybe over a generalization that Midwest startups companies, because they need more traction, because they need to be more financially prudent, more capitally efficient. When recessions come, when the hard times come. They may be a little bit more durable. They may be maybe to withstand that environment as opposed to other areas in the country, not to be named, that are a little bit more grow at all costs and there's not much underneath the hood. It's sort of just pumping capital in growth for the sake of growth. I don't know. Is that am I overgeneralizing things? Maybe I'm, I'm sure I am, but just curious if that's kind of what you think is something that emerged from the you know crisis. Yeah, I think there are. And we, we can get into this, but there are good things about being in the Midwest. There are some pros and cons, right, about being here. And one of the pros is that, you know, the types of business that we build and the types of things we look for are a little bit different. But what I will say is, you know, that my portfolio, I don't only invest in the Midwest. I invest all over the United States. And uh, the founders that I back uh, pre the last year, I guess still even within the last even still have not necessarily gotten the same amount of funding that traditional kind of VC-backed investors have gotten. And so uh, they have had to be super scrappy. They've had to be super capital efficient. And so when we had a COVID environment, they were shocked just like everybody else. But they were like, well, I didn't necessarily overhire. And I've been through this before. And let me, you know, cut costs where I need. Let me, um, you know, extend this runway a little bit more and and get to a good point for the next race. I'll give you one example is one of my portfolio companies in, actually in San Francisco. Um, they raise money responsibly pre, you know, obviously pre series A and they were to the, they were so scrappy to the point where we had to be like, can you put more money to the fire to grow? Can you hire more people? And so they did. And then COVID hit and some of the revenue was delayed and they were you know they cut spend they they cut some contractors but they didn't have to fire massive amounts of people they got to profitability and they continued to grow during COVID. they were in that tech space and then they got a a, a series a term sheet in, in november of last year by a a, a well-known big name vc and so they were able to basically control their destiny which is you know what you see in these types of founders that that have that don't have access to easy money that makes total sense. I think, you know, one one question actually I still had about your background. Did you go to Kellogg knowing you wanted to get into venture capital, um, or did that sort of emerge from your time there? How did how did that MBA experience go for you? Yeah, no, I didn't know I wanted to get into venture capital. So this was 2012 when I started, and it wasn't. I, I guess maybe venture capital was something a, a career that other business school, you know, people wanted to get into, but certainly not in Chicago. It wasn't, or at Northwestern, it wasn't 
very popular. As a matter of fact, I think I was the only one recruiting at the time for venture capital. It was most people were going into obviously consulting, marketing roles, investment banking, you know, those types of roles. And uh, I took a class called VC Lab because uh, one of my friends had was applying, and she's like, "You should apply." As a matter of fact, it was it was a group of four or five of us women that were interviewing for finance roles, and we all experience a lot of different things that were unique to us and so we all decided to bond together and support each other and so we all kind of gave advice uh, with each other on the roles we were applying for what types of interview how to prepare we were all preparing for it and so um, I got this this idea to to apply for this BC role so I was like okay great and I applied and I got in and uh, it I was I had done public market analysis and selling and, and now I was looking at the private markets, which is a whole different world. I fell in love with it. Um, and then when I graduated, I didn't have a job, but, but I wanted to get into venture. And at the time, I mean, it, well, first of all, it's all relationship based. Uh, less a little bit now because people publish roles now and there's more firms, especially here in Chicago. But at the time, there was no roles that were published. There was very few firms. It was still growing. And um I was able to just kind of network with a lot of people in the industry. And I'll, I'll highlight Rumi Morales, who is the former head of the CME Ventures here in Chicago. She was a former Goldman alum. I got introduced to her. She was very kind and, and introduced me to uh, one of her friends who then introduced me to Mark and Troy that had just launched uh, Math Venture Partners. And their whole thesis was uh, investing in companies with an unfair advantage in customer acquisition. Was, so it was all about sales. I'm like, look, I got that sales piece during the financial crisis. I can add value day one, but you know, I'll learn all this venture capital stuff. And so I convinced them to hire me, and that's how I got into venture. But, yeah, it wasn't a cool thing. It wasn't what my friends were doing. It was just something that I – uh, stumbled into and I fell in love with and I pursued and I'm super grateful for uh, having Northwestern give me the opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such an interesting kind of insight into what the VC landscape was like here um, only just a few years ago and how much it's changed, I feel like, in the last five years, but especially I feel like in the last two years, it just feels like fundraise after fundraise. This year, it's 12 unicorns already, and you're just seeing these bigger and multi-million dollar funds get raised here, um, which I just can't imagine was very common back in the time that oh, you yeah. were getting your MBA. Um, well, I mean, even now, I have high school students reaching out for a job. I'm like, how the heck do you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to get into venture, right? Yeah. And then we looked at a business in Nebraska where the founder was 19 years old. This was his like second or third business. I'm like, this is, you guys are just way more ahead of the game than I ever was at that age. I, <laughs> I saw a start, there's a startup going through Techstars right now that is connecting high school talent, technical talent, you know, software, kids who code, uh, which actually, I just coined that phrase. So maybe I should talk to them <laughs> about a tagline, kids who code. Um, I like that. That's, that's not what they describe them as, but it's effectively kids who code, you know, from ninth grade on to 12th grade, they're connecting them with like um, startups in Silicon Valley for, for you know, outsourced software development. Um, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling the fervor with which young people have uh, getting into VC. I mean, Gen Z is one thing, but high school students, which I guess are still Gen Z, but I don't know. Yeah. It's just a commentary. Yeah. It's crazy to me. I mean, I understand it, it but it's still crazy. <laughs> it is. It is. So, um, but it, it, you know, a lot has changed and for the better jobs are posted. There's more firms to work with. There's fellows programs. There's 
internships. We had a unicorn intern this summer from HBCUVC, uh, which we're very excited about. So there's a lot more now, which um, will lead to more um, investors from, from different backgrounds, which I'm excited about. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I'd, I'd love to um, turn to Chingona Ventures. I'd love to hear about the origin behind it and, and you know, the origin behind the name and, and, and the overall mission of the fund. Yeah. So when I started in venture about seven, eight years ago, I um, was just excited to be in the role and, and, you know, talking to founders. And, and over time, I, I kept seeing a pattern of the same types of founders getting back, same types of business models, same types of industries. And, and I had tracked them over time. And I said, okay, if I had invested in this founder, if I had invested in this business, they would have had, you know, uh, much bigger raises, exits, growth in customers. And so, um, and I saw just the differences that they had in terms of fundraising and in terms of, uh, just access to capital, right? Like a founder that has a PhD in their space and has revenue and traction can barely get $300,000, but uh, yet a founder with a deck and a swagger can, can get $5 million. And, uh, you know, with capital, you get more time. You get more uh, with time you, you get and resources. You can test out your model in very different ways. You can sometimes pivot. You can hire. You can do all that. So it was a first and foremost event, an investable opportunity that I saw and an investable opportunity that I saw from my own background and what I had experienced. And even in, in, in businesses that were catering to certain demographics, the example I always give is the Latino market, which is the fastest growing market in the United States. One out of every, every four kids being born today is Latino. We have one of the highest GDPs out of any other group. Uh, Latinas in particular are one of the fastest growing business owners in the United States. And yet we get less than what 2% of all venture capital. So for me, I was like, okay, this is a market I understand. I, I've lived and I've, I see an investable opportunity first and foremost. So that's what led me to launch Chingona Ventures in 2019. And at first, I actually didn't have a name. So if you first, if you see my decks from, you know, before I launched, it was just like X Ventures, SMH Ventures. Like I didn't even, I had a placeholder. And then my younger sister, who's not in VC, she's an actress model, you know, backup dancer for Lil Wayne, um, was like, hey, you know, which is a whole other story because I was like at the Lil Wayne concert backstage. I'm like, hold on, hold on. Wait a second. Okay, pause. Yeah, okay. I have this this like amazing, you know, family member who who's, does this other life and I get exposure right. to, but I didn't even know who Lil Wayne was until she was like <laughs> dancing with him. So, All right. Um, yeah, no, it's been, it was, pretty incredible um but yeah so she was like hey you know uh why don't you give your your new company name uh chingona chingona ventures you know chingona in in spanish from mexico means badass woman and it's something that we say as a a way of like pumping each other up like that oh that's muy chingon that's like badass you know or just it's 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 a phrase that chingonas in particular use just to uh, push ourselves and show how much of an incredible person you are given all the odds that you have to overcome. And for me, the founders that I back 
have had that, have to overcome challenges that many others haven't and have unique uh, life experiences that I believe put, puts them in in an unfair advantage to to succeed and to understand the market in a unique, in a unique way. And so uh, that's why I chose to name my fund Chingona Ventures. That's the best origin story for a venture capital fund name I have ever heard that we've ever heard on this show. Number one at the top of the list. I don't know if it's getting knocked down anytime soon. Wow. Um, woo, okay. Well, well all, all the trees were taken. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No more trees left in the forest. So yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I'd love to hear a bit about and maybe educate listeners on, um, the investment mandate from the perspective of stage, check size, industries, if any in particular are you're focusing on today, we could dive into all of that. Yeah. So we are mainly pre-seed investors, true pre-seed investors. What does that mean? That means we aim to be your largest and first check-in to the company. Um, and that is really differentiating, I believe, in the Midwest because there's no one that really does that and can lead, set the terms, catalyze the round, and get you to that next stage, right? Um, I saw a big need, and we talked about this earlier, but in the Midwest, investors typically want more traction. It's less, it's more risk averse. And I understand why that is, right? When you are still early on in your fund one and fund two, it's hard. Um, if you can wait to get more data, why not wait and get more data and make a bigger check then? But I saw a lot happening on the coast, specifically in the Valley, where um, there was a big angel network and uh, there was a lot more people saying, okay, well, I'll invest 100000 in, I just got it, you know, um, liquidity from my stock at Facebook, Google, whatever, you know, big tech company. I'm going to invest this amount of money. And uh, there's a different risk return profile. The earlier you go, the more risk, but the higher return. And so I saw a big need for doing that out of the Midwest and, and being that person. So stage is really important to me. I have some seed investments, but pretty much before Series A, very first check-in. Uh, the second is we're industry agnostic, but areas we focus in on are fintech's a big one. That's 35% of the portfolio. Future of work, femtech, food, health, and wellness, and edtech. That's where we saw the biggest opportunities. We have about 65% in B2B, uh, 35% in B2C. And um, let's see, in terms of portfolio founders, we invest in all types of founders, not just women, women and minorities, but over 80% of our portfolio company CEOs, I don't just count founders, and we'll talk about why that is in a second, but portfolio company CEOs are um, either women or minority, and that's really important to me because that's way above the industry average. Um, we've invested in non-diverse teams as well, but um, many times we'll take the board seat or we provide a different perspective on the market. Sometimes we are then consumer. Um, and I think that's about it in terms of... Oh, a check size. Uh, fund one was one hundred to two hundred fifty thousand. Fund two will be two fifty to uh, five hundred thousand. It's, I mean, addressing such a potent need. I think um, at that pre-seed stage, especially here in the Midwest. And and Brian Lurson is somebody I had from Long Jump Capital. Yeah. Um, I had him on the show back in June, and 
it's funny. There's there's almost two conversations sometimes that I have um, on the show. You know, I talk to founders every week, and I talk to VCs, and I think, you know, the resounding converse, the resounding sort of consensus I get from most founders is that precede that that first check where you are just an idea and, and a strong founder, you just need that capital to get off the ground. It exists elsewhere in the U.S. Yes. It exists, and obviously in Silicon Valley, it exists in New York. And I think a lot of people would argue that that growth engine, that's sort of the first cog in the growth engine that is necessary to get to the level or close to the level of a Silicon Valley in New York. You need those early stage risk takers. And, you know, I I just, from your perspective, you know, is this, do you you foresee more funds such as yourself, you know, coming into this white space in the future? Do you think other investors have really woken up to the idea of it, it can't just be serial entrepreneurs, you know, people who've already exited a successful business that we're backing at this stage. There's so much opportunity and it's sort of necessary for the ecosystem. Do you think others will kind of follow suit? Well, I think, well, first of all, it's happened already. And, but these were founders that uh, had exits before or had a network. So I have absolutely seen founders being backed with a deck pre this year, pre, you know, the last few years. And I was like, hmm, you know, I get it, right? But a second time or third time founder isn't necessarily better. Um, they've been through it and maybe have had some exits. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they're probably worse because you know they don't have the same grit. They don't have the same you know whatever else as a founder, a first time founder. There's a, there's even data around that that the majority of the, the big unicorns and best exits have been from first-time founders, not second or third-time founders. You know, that being said, with second and third-time founders do have a playbook, they have a network, they can, you know, I've talked to them as an investor and they just have, in Chicago, and they have this swagger of like, hey, you know, I'm not even going to use a deck. Um, right. I'm not really going to even answer your questions. Like, are right. you in or out because of me? And I have made those investments, and those investments haven't always worked out, right? Um, but it's always a really great uh, just to see a founder with what we call the chingona factor, the like stop at nothing, you know, to get this the first customer signed up, teach themselves how to code, overcome certain challenges in their lives to get to this point, the same point as many other founders, right? And so for me, um, I've seen it happen, but only with certain types of founders. Now, going forward, I do believe that there, you know, right now there's crowdfunding campaigns, there's COVID has accelerated some uh, coastal VCs coming into the Midwest and and being able to do more things over Zoom. Um, I see some, you know, more scouts, uh, angels, uh, smaller checks coming in. You know, I think those are good. Those are people that I I co-invest with. and you don't always need a lead at the pre-seed. The reason why I do lead is because I like to put in at least half the round, set the terms, um, do all the diligence. I do, all my founders will tell you, I do more diligence than many others because I want to make sure that, um, you know, I really understand the business, but also that you get to see that I, I'm really excited about your business. And, you know, some we've, to win deals, we've sometimes, you know, put together pitch decks for the founders on our analysis on a specific market and where we see the big opportunity, right? Because at the stage that they're in, I mean, they know more about the business than anybody else, but right. at the stage that they're in, they're still trying to figure out, they're still pre-launched, yep. they're still going to test out different different uh, revenue streams. And so not that we we know better than them or we're the experts, but hey, this is, you know, over the last, over 
the you know x number of years that we've all collectively been here this is what we've seen where this is what we haven't seen work so well this is where we see the opportunity and uh you know uh, we, it's a different kind of conversation so so i do believe there's more coming to market and i'm hopeful that as we get more exits especially with all the unicorns and hopefully a lot of employees have equity that when you do have an exit they will in turn invest it back into the community and when you're doing due diligence um you mentioned some aspects or some, you know, kind of anecdotes about the the Jingona factor, but h- how do you how do you get at the root of that? Do you do you ask founders sort of directly in the first couple of meetings? Do you use customer reference calls? Do you just sort of wait for them to tell you about their experiences? How do you kind of assess or suss that out or pull that from them to really determine if they have it? Yeah. So I'll talk high level of the framework that we use and then specifically part of that and how I assess that. So the way we think about how we assess a deal is we call it the five P's. People, product, profit, potential, and portfolio. People, especially the earlier you go, is very important, is the most important. Profit, is there a product? What does your product do? Is it Can you clearly articulate what it's doing, who it's benefiting? Is it a nice to have versus a need to have? Sometimes it's doing a social good, but is it going to be able to you know get these big venture returns? So we assess that. Profit, we... Uh, want to see a path to profitability like there's no way around that we just can you make revenue or can't what's the potential there what does that look like um potential what are downstream investors what are co-investors what are exits in this space sometimes it's a very niche space um with very little exit potential so then we'll assess the deal differently so and we can give examples of that um and then portfolio how does it time with our portfolio? Does it make sense for the the, the check size that we're writing? The um, uh, you know sometimes we're we're overweighted in a specific area, so we may not want to be overweighted in that area. You know that kind of thing. How's it fit with our portfolio? And then on the people side, let's go back to the the first P, which is what you're asking. The second part of your question, we look for three different types of founders, or we've invested in three different types of founders. The first one is a traditional founder, so we have invested in the, you know, Stanford, Google, whatever. Well, we invest in that, but everyone's going after that. So it's not differentiating, but we will invest there. The second one is an experience. It's an experienced founder. So someone that has had industry experience, maybe has, you know, 20, 30 years in the ed tech space and saw a big opportunity and is not building a business. They, they're they new to building a venture-backed business, but they're, they have industry connections. They know how to run a big team or a big company. And then the third types of founder, which is the most differentiating, and I think a lot of VCs look at it, the highest risks are founders that are maybe younger in their career, have never run a big company or a big team, have are from Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, not from a big city, and but have found a unique perspective on a market, have identified a problem, and have early validation that it's going to work. And those are the hardest, and you have to have the highest conviction, because many times people are not investing in that person. But um, we do a lot of work to, to assess um, traction in a very different way. So in terms of Chingona Factor, you know, a lot of this, this is why I don't like to do shotgun deals. That's the big thing now, especially in the Valley. It's like, all right, they have a call with me and they're like, are you in or are you out? We're closing tomorrow. Sometimes sometimes that's real FOMO. Sometimes that's not actual FOMO. I would say 90% of the time that's not actual FOMO, but, you know, we can get into that. Uh, but I don't do that because, and, and, you know, I might lose out on deals, but the same, but it, those deals have not been good for me. Those deals, if I commit very quickly, many times if the round is oversubscribed, like I can get kicked out because 
they, the founder hasn't got a chance to know me or what sort of value I can provide and I haven't gotten to know them. So I, um, I like to spend time with founders and founders that are truly oversubscribed uh, will want to take time to really assess strategic investors. For instance, this morning I had a, a meeting with a founder that is way oversubscribed. Um, he's here in Chicago, but came from the Valley. He's got amazing co-investors. And I went on a coffee chat. We walked around Michigan Avenue. First time, second, this is our second meeting. And we talked about why I started the fund. We talked about his family. We talked, he's an immigrant to this country. We talked about, you know, all the different iterations that they went through the business. We talked about like his background. And so, so it was, it comes naturally out of that, of those conversations, getting to know somebody. And, um, you know, I won't say too much about him because he's still in stealth mode, but uh, we're just committed to it. So we're really excited about that. But, but these are the types of conversations that I have because there's not, there's very little, they don't have a product launch. They don't have anything. They have proposed ideas. So it's more about me assessing their background. Sometimes I have to pull it out of them a little bit more. You know, some founders are a little bit more shy and don't want to talk about it, but but eventually, you know, uh, you hear those stories, and those are um, those are really great to, to see kind of and try to test out the resilience for the business in the future. Yeah, that's so helpful. I think that's such a great breakdown, um, and I think it's so illustrative of kind of the the model you guys have employed. And I mean, it's great to hear some of those anecdotal stories too, kind of behind the behind the scenes. I think. Another area I wanted to tap into a little bit was the process of fundraising. Um, yeah. You know, striking out on your own as a first-time kind of founder yourself of a venture capital fund, and you know, the experience of getting PayPal involved. What was that process like for you? And and uh, would just love to touch on that. First, yeah, I mean, fundraising sucks for everyone. I don't care who you are. Maybe, maybe unless you have connections already. And I know uh, Ezra, who's a friend, he was on the show and he talked about this. Uh, fundraising sucks as a whole. Fundraising in the Midwest sucks even worse. <laughs> Fundraising as a sole GP, even worse. Fundraising as a sole GP Latina, forget it. <laughs> and I'm just going to be super honest about that, right? Like there's, I think there's 10 of us sole GP Latinas in the United States, maybe even less than that. I know all of them. And it's, it's without a family network. With, uh, didn't grow up with money. Didn't, I don't have a friend's friend's friend that can, you know, write a 500k check. So it's challenging. Um, I am very, very fortunate that I had a lead investor, anchor investor in my fund who believed in me before anybody else, who saw investing in my fund in a very different way. So this was the Illinois Growth and Innovation Fund. Here in Illinois, they had at the time only invested, I think, in second or third time founders, they needed more traction. And, um, you know, they saw an opportunity to invest in new types of fund managers that had maybe VC experience. I, I was not new to venture. I, was, I had invested in the public and private markets for many years. Um, I was new to my strategy. And in order for this industry to change and to change the way it looks, we need to have more limited partners that are assessing these types of investments in a very different way, which is what the Illinois Growth and Innovation Fund did. And so they seeded my first investment, my first fund, and um, I was able to prove out the strategy, make the investments, and prove out that I'm a fund manager. So, so I, I like to say this because there's a lot more VCs, people wanting to be VCs coming to market or raising their own funds, and there's so much more than just 
talking to founders and saying yes or no. Right? You're, when you take institutional money, you have a fiduciary responsibility to them. And, you know, these are people that, that are pension funds many times that raise money from the states, from, from people's tax dollars. And so you're responsible to that, you know, essentially. We have some foundations that, uh, you know, are investors in the fund. And so for me, it's not only, you know, can I make good investments? Can I get good returns? But can I be a fiduciary of your capital? And so I also had to prove that, um, which... I had done at math, you know, with, with, they had, they were, they had institutional LPs as well. And so I was grateful that I learned part of that at math. And so, um, they invested in my fund and, you know, with fund two, we did, we're fortunate to have PayPal ventures in the fund. They were one of our first commitments and helped basically launch, uh, the fund two raise. And we had some other LPs that, uh, have been public and, and you'll hear more of in the next few months. But, uh, I will say that it was harder to raise $50,000 in the Midwest than it was to raise $5 million outside of the Midwest. And I feel that with the founders that I back, um, I hope that's going to change. We have had a few LPs here in the Midwest that we're very grateful for, and you'll hear some of those names you know, soon in, in the next few months. But uh, it's still a challenge to raise from anybody, right, as a fund manager, start a fund here. But... Um, once you do, and once you get some some traction and some anchor LPs, and I use my time at at, at Goldman Sachs uh, in sales because essentially it's a sales process. You have to run a sales a fundraising process. You have to understand who you're targeting, what's unique to you, what's your story, um, you know, what's resonating, what doesn't resonate, and also what I learned at Goldman that kind of helped with this was that um, selling is very different for different people so what works for me I'm not a very like aggressive you know high frequency talk to as many people as I can that's never worked for me ever in my life that's not my style I'm more of a you know by the time you get to me I want you to hear about me three or four times from other people I want you to I want to have few high quality conversations where they promote you to other people and it was very strategic it wasn't um I sometimes even overthink that one of my LPs mentioned this, but I don't, I didn't like say, okay, I'm going to launch one of ventures and create a website and then launch and then tell everyone that I have this thing when I didn't even raise a dollar of, of money. I didn't even announce my, my fund launch until eight months after I actually launched because I wanted to have investments. I wanted to make sure that we had staff that we wanted, that we had people to, when founders uh, pitched us, we, we had the ability to assess them and to really respond and to, to do all that. And so that's just what works for me. That's just my strategy. It, it's different, works different for other people. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful and fortunate that we've had some incredible LPs that have believed in us and, um, and, and will continue to believe in us in fun too. And what would be your advice, I guess, looking back um, for those people who are inside of sort of that, you know, they've been at an established fund for a while and they know they want to launch their own fund one day. Do you have any kind of prescriptive advice to those people and when they should go about starting the process or how to think about when is the right time or if there ever even is a right time? What would be your advice for anyone who's kind of in your shoes a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that's on top of a lot of people's minds. Literally, I have a lot of people reach out to me that are uh, non-partners or other funds and say like, hey, I got this, either I got this opportunity to to 
launch this fund with a partner or um, I'm just going to go off on my own. What do you think? And, you know, the short answer is go do it. But the longer answer is, is it's not as glamorous as, or, or there's stuff that you don't see, you know, with all these announcements on the news, right? And and I want to, I like to start with that because everyone's kind of glorifying venture capital. I get literally at least two, if not five people reach out to me every week to say, hey, I'm launching my fund. What do you think? And I, I will say all the non-glamorous stuff first. So one, it takes longer than you think. Two, um, uh, you may not have a salary for a very long time because you you know, if you don't raise right away, you have to wait till you get an actual salary. So you have to make that decision personally. If you have a partner, right, you have to make that decision, which I had that conversation with my partner uh, prior to launching my fund. And I ended up getting pregnant while I was still raising, not intent, like it was not planned. And uh, that sucked in itself, right? Oh, yeah, fun one. Not only that. So <laughs> non-coastal, no network, sole GP, Latina and pregnant. So yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, make so it make it any yeah, harder. Why not? I mean, Lord. Just keep, keep <laughs> throwing something else to the mix, you know, Lord. why not? <laughs> but, um, Ugh. yeah, so, so, so I would say there's all these things that, and not only that, but many times you have to put up your own GP commit, which is one to 2%, sometimes more of the fund. So if you raise a $25 million fund, 1% of that, just make sure you, you know, you have that. Um, and you know, you'll see a lot of announcements. I have a lot of people say like, there's so much capital out there. I'm just going to go raise. Like it wasn't an easy thing to get PayPal. It wasn't like I called them up and say, Hey, I have a fund. They're like, cool. You know, here's $10 million. I get that. Just, that's not how it works. And many times a lot of the announcements that have been made, you know, those commitments have been allocated. It's not like they're investors that invest multiple times. PayPal does, but, but some others, you know, not necessarily. So there's that. The, the good part about where we are today is that there's a lot of great things that you can do. So there's a lot of scout programs. So if you are interested in launching your own fund and maybe, you know, with your fund, you don't have the, the decision-making authority or you maybe don't like their thesis or you just want to do something on the side, you can work with your venture fund to say, hey, can I be a scout with somebody else? Or can I make angel investing, even if it's 5 to 10K? which I think even Ezra did um, when he was at Chicago Ventures. But, um, but, but you know, there's, there's ways you can, you can get exposure to your fund thesis because people will go out, even if you have venture experience, they will say, do you have experience investing in your thesis? And I actually just right before this talked to a founder or a GP that's funding his own fund. He's in the Valley, Stanford, has had exits, came from a huge name firm, and he's still like, uh, 15 million away from his goal like he's still struggling to, to raise and um, he has a track record and he has but but his he's new to his fund and he's new to his thesis and many institutional P's will look for that right and so um, I, I always advise getting a, a track record for your thesis getting exposure to having your own track record whether it's through angel investing through crowdsourcing funding or through um, scouts and then uh, what's great about now is that there's all these different types of funds. There's rolling funds you can do on angel list. Now you can publicly solicit if it's under a $10 million fund. You can have more than, you know, uh, 299 investors. 
those are not the strategies for my fund because it's it's more kind of a traditional approach. But there's ways that you could probably still keep your day job. So there's people that are like part-time in, um, investors. And so there's a lot of different things that you can do to mitigate those risks. Um, you know, those strategies work for some people. They may not work for others, but there's a lot you can do if you really want to test it out. And what about board seats? Is that a deal breaker if you if you just you know you're you haven't had board seats in the past, or how, how does that sort of play into the the fundraising cycle for launching your own fund? I advise people that uh, are at other more junior individuals at other funds to either negotiate that as part of their contract or to make sure they have that right away, even if they just go and sit and listen and take notes. And, you know, I did that at math. I was fortunate that I, I uh, sat into a lot of board meetings uh, pre, you know, running my own fund. And that gave me exposure to a lot of, a lot of different things that, um, you know, of the decisions that are made at the board seat. And so uh, when I invest, many times at the pre-seed, I, um, I create a board and I know that's maybe a controversial thing, but what it does is it helps founders. It's a, it's a, it's founder led it's three per people. It's not even that intense. It just gets somebody in the habit of saying, okay, this is how a board meeting would run. This is, there's governance around that. So even other investors are like, okay, there's somebody and there's governance around the company. It helps you understand, okay, like what are the goals for this year? What does the budget look like? What is a budget that we have to approve? Um, how do we start planning for uh, the next raise? How do we think about hiring? How do we think about compensation? This is, you know, helping somebody get institutionalized to get to that next point. And so as earlier in your career that you can get a board seat, there's a lot of responsibility with that, the better. And, you know, there's a lot of, bad board members. There's board members that distract, that don't come prepared, that just talk more than listen. And so it's really important to, uh, as a junior VC, also to understand um, what you like about certain board members, what you want to uh, aspire to be, and what you don't. And um, you also see certain situations that happen. There's always something uh, with the founder. And so, you know, think about what role you want to play on the board. Is it, you know, the supportive person? Is it the, the CEO whisper? Is it the you know, whatever it is, that role that you want to play. Um, because when you do take an official board role, you have fiduciary responsibility, right, to the shareholders. And so, um, and I will say this too, there, there's there's also a few women and minorities on board seats. And it, uh, I'm part of the an organization that is is working on on getting more uh, women, minorities, particularly Latinos on, on publicly traded boards. Uh, we need more representation at the board level to help, you know, make these strategic decisions, and and especially for companies that where the end consumer are mostly women or mostly, you know, minority, how the heck do you not have diverse board members on there? So, uh, I think that actually, I'm glad you asked that. That plays a, an important role in our in our decision making process and in the advice that I give other investors. Well, I, I'm so happy we went down that route of conversation because I don't think I've had anyone on the show who's had your experience and can talk through the process of you know standing up a venture fund um, so recently and so succinctly. And I think we just got into so much great detail there that I know I'm going to be coming back to this episode for years to come. Um, so that was awesome. I, I think I know you know we're, we're we're coming to the close here, and I would love to sort of um, ask you about some of the organizations. I think you may have mentioned one or two, but any of the organizations you're involved with here in Chicago or in the broader venture, venture landscape at large that you think is doing really important work that you would love to just, you know, give a shout out to? 
Yeah, yeah. So locally, there's Chicago Blend. I was on the board earlier on. I um, I'm on now the advisory board, so I've sp- stepped back a little bit just because I'm I'm running a fund. But Lindsay Knight, I don't know, have you had her on your show? Yeah, we're in communication. Yeah, I okay, think I'm going to have her on in October. Yep. So I won't spill kind of the, the whole story there because that's that's her story. But she's been an incredible leader, and they're doing a lot of great work on increasing diversity and uh, data driven first. And uh, that's that's. Lindsay's sweet spot and really helping grow the community and uh, provide exposure to what is actually happening and then what can we do to fix it. So that's a, a local VC, the local firm here in Chicago. There is uh, Angeles Investors, which is an angel group here in Chicago, looking uh, focusing on uh, Latino executives investing in Latino founders. It's a organization that. Um, I think it's great because they're, they're increasing diversity at the investor level, but also at the founder level. And I've sent deals, we've co-invested, I've advised on a lot of different strategies there. And I've actually hired, um, you know, people from there. And then uh, more nationally, there's the Latinx VC group. It's reared off of black VC. So looking to increase on a national level, more investors into venture, both coming into venture, uh, mentoring. I have a mentor, I have a mentee, there that uh, to get them to have to partner, and then for me, the the committee I sit on is one that is looking to increase the funding into GPs at Latino GPs at venture funds, and so I am looking at this from all different levels. Uh, you know, not only the investments that I make, the boards that I sit on, the LPs into my fund, but also getting more investors invested at running their own funds, getting them promoted, uh, because that's how we're going to change the industry. I love that. I love that. All those organizations sound incredible, and we'll provide links to them in the show notes. And um, I just yes. want to thank you so much for hopping on the show. This has been incredible. I, I can't wait to do it again when a new fundraise happens or any kind of major, major exits, or as I'm sure there will be in the future for you guys. But thank you so much for hopping on the show. This is such a pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you for having me, and thank you for highlighting all the Chicago VCs and founders. I think we need to have just a much stronger voice. We are um, no longer small. We're, we're getting you know, to unicorn status. We're raising funds. It's gonna, we're, we're not there yet, but it's going to take time, and, and we're, we're all working hard to, to make a name for ourselves in the, in the industry. So thank you for highlighting us. Of course. Of course. It's my pleasure. Samara, thank you so much for hopping on the show. Thank you. Take care.